Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. I am delighted to have the chance to introduce Rabbi Mary Zamor. Um, Rabbi Zamor is the executive director of the Women's Rabbinic Network, which is the international organization representing reform women, non-binary, and gender fluid rabbis, of which there are more than 850 who have been ordained. Yeah, 860. 860. Um, uh, since um, women... Um, and um, non-binary and gender fluid folks became ordained more than 50 years ago, but we're going to hear much more about that mm -hmm. um, this evening. Um, so um, Rabbi Zamor um, has uh, been the executive director of WN for eight or nine years? Nine. Nine years. Um, she is the editor of the Sacred Exchange, creating a Jewish money ethic. Um, as well as The Sacred Table, Creating a Jewish Food Ethic. Both are excellent books with so much um, to learn. Um, and um, she teaches all over at synagogues, JCCs, community organizations all over the country, virtually and in person again now. Um, and before joining WN as our executive director, um, she, um, and I say our, because I'm one of the co-presidents of WN, um, and uh, before that, Rabbi Zamor served congregations in Westfield, Morristown, and Washington, New Jersey. Um, and um, one amazing accomplishment um, of Rabbi Zamor's during her time um, with WN has been to um, co-found the Reform Pay Equity Initiative, which is an initiative, um, I think the only initiative to bring together all 17 reform movement organizations um, into one effort working toward pay equity. Um, and just work practices mm -hmm. um, in the reform movement, including um, the corollary issues of family leave and other issues that impact pay equity and work equity. Um, and she also co-founded our Safe Clergy Employees and Employers Program, um, which focuses on training seminaries um, uh, at all levels within the seminary and training seminarians um, in the Jewish world to um, as future employees and employers to help create safe, respectful, and equitable um, workplaces. Um, and I will also say that um, Rabbi Zamor's efforts through Me Too, the time of Me Too, and a recent kind of more recent wave of Me Too revelations and impacts during um, COVID, um, not that everything happened then, but it came out then, um, and helping the reform movement, really guiding the reform movement in a, a reckoning um, and learning process and teshuva process um, um, through that has been transformational work um, in the reform Jewish world. So um, speaking personally, I am uh, one of the many co-chairs of the Rabbi Mary Zamor fan club. Um, <laughs> and um, she's a dear friend. And I think one of the rabbis doing the most powerful work um, in the Jewish world. Um, at yeah. this time. And so just super excited to have the chance to mm. learn together yeah. and to share her with all of you. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and I was, I was with the uh, 
Valley Beit Midrash in uh, January 2020, right before the pandemic, when I uh, came and spoke about the sacred exchange and some of that material. So it's a pleasure to be back and with Temple Chai and with all of you. And um, we're going to dive into some of the history of women in the rabbinate. You know, this was billed as highlights of the last 50 years. But I'm going to go a little wider than that by a couple thousand years. So I hope you don't mind. <laughs> hope you don't mind. Um, because I think it's important to kind of see where we were to where we are and to see that contrast. Think about, you know, when did when did you first recollect seeing or meeting a woman who's a rabbi? So just like think of that for yourself. You know, it it's it's been 50 years and and certainly to you know children and young adults growing up today, they don't know a time without women who are serving as rabbis. But, you know, many of us can actually remember the first time we met someone who was female identified and a rabbi. So Rabbi Mari. <laughs> okay. Rabbi Mari. Debbie and member. Proud, right? Proud Debbie yeah. member. We featured her and her sisters a couple of years ago in some nice videos that you can see online. Okay. My rabbi, Amy Perlin, who many of you met mm -hmm. in my installation. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, I was one of the ones who got to grow up with that as the norm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very different. Um, and I knew about Rabbi Presan, but in terms of like meeting face to face, it was actually after I decided I wanted to become a rabbi. I hadn't <laughs> begun my studies yet, but um, I went to services at Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York City and saw Helene Ferris who was um, her her first, what we're going to talk a lot about first tonight. So her first was that she was the first second career older rabbi uh, to study as a second career. And, um, and you know, she, as she tells the story, she was like a suburban housewife and no one ever thought she'd get through rabbinical school. And of course she flourished and was is an amazing role model for all of us. And to see her on the Bima, you know, middle of New York City was pretty moving. So this raises the question, which is kind of you know, like, hmm, what is a rabbi, right? So we can answer that question in a lot of ways, right? In terms of function, what do rabbis do? What is the history of this title, Rabbi Rav, the Israel, Rabbi in Israel? What is that? Or what does that look like? So we're going to just see, I have a little hobby. You know, it's a little harder now because the way search engines work, so they, they because they pick up everywhere you've been in those cookies, right, and the algorithms and start to integrate places in the you, way you see the world. So I find when I do this on my home computer, it doesn't work. So I have to get like a fresh computer that's never interacted with the Jewish world. <laughs> and then, we'll, then we see this. The, these are the images I get, right? And of course, studies show us about implicit bias that, you know, you can be the most ardent feminist on earth. That's a person of any gender who believes in radical, radical equality between human beings and, and not have, think you have any implicit bias, but every single test shows us that actually we do because there are certain imprints about the way we've grown up with um, bias and with images that we see right? The, these images. And so whether you're talking about a surgeon, a lawyer, a leader, 
a president, like whatever it is, these are the imprints that our neurons and our brains have. So it's important to keep that in, in you know, but what what is what's the commonality here? Beards. So yes. you would think they're all Hasidic, but technically they're not. Like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is or is Orthodox, which is not Hasidic technically. So that is actually different. But you're right, all all beards, right? What what else? Oh, very they're all Ashkenazi. All Ashkenazi. Yeah. Mm. All no one said the obvious. They're no, all men. 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 Yeah. Right. Uh, all what else? Older. 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 White. Yeah. Right. So, you know, again, if you do this in my search engine on my computer, now that things have changed the way search engines work, you see a lot more diversity in those, in the everything, everything we just like the diverse, like in every way, shape or form. When we talk about rabbis and we're, we're part of the trust of what it means to chain the chain of tradition, right? Kabbalat Torah, that here in Pirkei Avot, we have this beautiful line of Moses receiving the Torah at Sinai and transmitting it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and to the elders, the prophets, the prophets, the men of the great assembly. So that, um, so, you know, here we have this idea of chain. And when we talk about being rabbis, we talk about being part of that chain. But of course, when you look at these roots, again, where, where's our part of the story? Right. So that's what we're going to try to uncover here as we go forward. That's Rabbi Sally Presan. Exactly. Okay. So now we're getting trickier with the questions. Ordained <laughs> in 1972. Okay. Here's a more important question. Where does she live? New Jersey. I'm just kidding. <laughs> a great place to live. A great place to live. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So the next slide, we don't, we're not going to go back physically to the other slide, but Rabbi Sally Presan, why is she important, ordained in 1972? Isn't she the first one in the United States to be ordained? Okay, so that's one way to, to communicate her, her achievement. We're going to talk about what that, right? Like, what is the, the language, actually? And it's actually quite disputed, right? This is a hot topic at WRN. <laughs> so the first woman ordained in the United States. Maybe. 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 Let's say maybe. Okay. Any other stabs at this? Okay, so then who is this woman and why would I be showing you her? So she's Rabbi Regina Jonas, ordained in 1935 in Nazi Germany. So how could it possibly be that we talk about 50 years of women in the rabbinate? Shouldn't we be talking about almost 100 years of women in the rabbinate? So the problem is, is well, we're going to find out more about her story in a little bit. So I'm going to leave her there. But the way we communicate this difference is that Rabbi Jonas was ordained and privately ordained. Even we're gonna hear more of her narrative and how she studied in a seminary, a liberal seminary, again in Berlin, it's like mind blowing, and uh, was ordained privately because the seminary wouldn't ordain her. So we talk about her as being the first known, this is important, known woman to be ordained um, privately, but it didn't create a path to the rabbinate. Now we, of course, think about all the what ifs. What, what if, you know, the Holocaust hadn't happened? 
what if she, if she hadn't perished in the Holocaust? So she, um, you know, maybe there would have been more of a path sooner. But it took another 50 years for that path really to open up. And Rabbi Prezant, those of us who are a little bit closer to her, a little bit maybe biased, we like to be very pointed with that language and not say that she's the first woman ordained in America, which is, of course, true. But the first woman publicly ordained and therefore the first one at the beginning of the path of women in the rabbinate. Mm -hmm. And then to even make the further argument, it's not just women. It's about people of all different types of beautiful identities. And it's actually not just about rabbis. It's about sharing Jewish leadership widely with people, uh, not only rabbis, but also cantors and educators and temple presidents and volunteers and lay leaders, and what it means to be in partnership among a broad, diverse, beautiful Jewish community. Mm -hmm. So that's really the underlying message here. And again, we're seeing that, that what is the chain of our tradition? Right, we saw the other change, Moses and Joshua and the elders. But here we can go, for instance, to Deborah. I'm not going to sit here and read the whole thing to you. Many of you know the story of Deborah. If you don't, you you please, you know, Google her. Go to the Book of Judges, the original Google, and uh, <laughs> you know, Google. and 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 see. But she was a a prophet. She was a military leader. She was a, a wise person. So was she a rabbi? Well, they didn't have rabbis. This is not the age of rabbis. This is the age of prophets. But we saw that in the chain of tradition of those early, early nascent roots into what we became as Jewish leaders. So she's in this. And so we have examples. And, you know, if we were going to have some wild fun tonight. I could ask all of you to, like, write the names of all the women in the Bible that you could think of. Right. And. And, you know, maybe we collectively we could get pretty far. But, you know, Tamar Ashkenazi, one of our great um, professors at Hebrew Union College and a rabbi and a W member um, that, you know, has a whole list. And when you look at those lists, you're like, wow, I had no idea they're all there. But sometimes they're there in the shadows, right? Sometimes they're there as the wife of Noah. Even though she's given a name by the rabbinic tradition, we don't know her name in the original text. And then there are other women like Miriam. Here's another name that pops up in terms of what are our roots? What is the breadth of women's leadership that we see throughout the ages? Here we see Beria. So very well-known name, um, Rabbi Meir's wife. And, and again, we're not going to study this text. If we were in a different setting, we would have lots of fun studying this text. But she makes a halakhic decision and teaches her husband in this text. And again, so then you think to yourself, well, what is a rabbi, right? But here she's not in the chain of tradition. So she's outside, but with the functionality of the rabbi. We're going to see other women like this. And now we're going to meet someone else. So now we're going to skip. Remember all those white men who are Ashkenazi. <laughs> okay, so we can tell the story in many different ways. So Sigal Samuel uh, recently wrote a book. It came out during the pandemic, I think even in 2020 or 21, called Osmat and Her Dove. And she tells, she says it and her publisher says, the true story of the world's first female rabbi, okay, Osmat Barzani. And here we go to 16th century uh, Mosul Kurdish, right? So um, like modern day Iraq and 
that area. But I think the importance here is whether or not we can say she was a rabbi, is that there is a story extent told from generation to generation in that Jewish community about a woman who um, had a lot of power in, in a very unique way. So her story is that her father ran a yeshiva and for whatever reason, she was always by his side studying and nobody prevented her from studying. So she soaked up every bit of Torah knowledge from her father and the yeshiva atmosphere. And she married a, a great student of her father's. And then unfortunately a plague came and killed the husband and killed the father. And there's, there's a whole yeshiva full of people studying, men studying. And she took over. And this is a theme we'll see throughout the ages of these women who were in positions. And when there was no men to teach, they had been there all along and they stepped forward. But what's unusual about this is that she, they accept her. They take her as the, the rabbi, right? She's not ordained in that classic sense. She's not uh, perhaps given that title in her age. That's disputed. But, but there is the story that shows her power. And, um, you know, it's not so funny anymore because we, we study these stories and we learn like these rabbis in ancient times were, were expected to blot out plagues, mm -hmm. right? So, we you know, the old days, like I used to like joke about plagues, like it's not funny anymore to us on the side of the pandemic. So there, a plague comes and she saves everybody. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this is a common theme throughout rabbinic lore, in general, either saving the community from a plague or a drought, again, Arizona, not so funny anymore. And um, Rabbi Siegel, you know, you're only your half, but you know, get on it. And uh, <laughs> top priority. Exactly. Um, or, you know, or, or um, you know, uh, non-Jewish local rulers who are trying to kill people. Again, not so funny anymore. I'm just happy that's actually not part of the list of things I'm supposed to be doing as a rabbi in modern ages, but that's so funny. Quick mention of um, Hannah Rachel uh, Vermeerach, the, the maiden of uh, Ludmere, many different names. So um, she, she is um, the daughter of a Hasidic master. She has a husband who's a Hasidic master. And there's a Rebbe that she's actually follows. And she studies... Um, almost like in a transgender, non-binary type of way where she identifies as one who should not get married and who who um, just should study Torah and and kind of shunts aside the identity that she should she's supposed to have in her Hasidic community in the 19th century. And finally, her, her family convinces her to, to go with a meeting to the Rebbe who convinces her to get married. And she does. And I, I think he too dies. I can't remember exactly, but it's possible he too dies. A lot of disease, disease back then. Again, not so funny anymore. And, um, and she actually, uh, again, teaches other people. She makes Aliyah, goes to Israel, opens a yeshiva and has male followers. Again, not not running rent, but she becomes a Hasidic rabbi, whoa. basically. Again, not with the title, but whoa, right? Mm -hmm. Whoa, exactly. It's like it's mind blowing. Again, with this this question, okay, who is a rabbi? What is a rabbi? What what does this mean? So, in this time period, just to remind you, in 1884 was the Seneca Falls Convention. So important uh, step in the ongoing 
uh, liberation of women, especially in America, and feminism. And here, Ray Frank was a journalist. Um, she was out west uh, in San Francisco. It was the high holidays. She goes to the Jewish community thinking that she'll go to services. And hard to believe there is a split in the Jewish community. And they can't, <laughs> they can't figure out how to actually merge and come together for the holidays. And, um, and she basically steps forward and helps heal the moment. And, and they know of her great oration. They know of her great writing. And I guess she was really uh, shined at the moment. And they said, well, okay, well, well, we'll come together for services, but only if you speak. And so she ends up giving the sermon for the high holidays. And they ask her to stay for Yom Kippur. And so, but the papers run rampant with the story in this first woman rabbi, <laughs> right? But the thing was, Ray Frank actually did not believe that women should be rabbis. They did, she did not believe that women should work after they got married. So it wasn't like she was some rabbit feminist. <laughs> That that you know, but she she was actually because this was the age of great orators who would go from town to town and, and get these huge audiences. She did that, and you had to buy tickets to hear her speak on and and uh, on Jewish topics. I mean, this was really quite a, a phenomenon. Um, but she got married later in life, and to, true to her word, never went out in public again in a professional capacity. Never spoke again. So, do, what I, I say, not a rabbi, not a real rabbi. No, some of these others, I'm, I'm ready to say, you know, go, go for it, girl. But no, not this one. Okay. So we're going to do like a little bit of a jump now, and come to the 20th century. And um, in uh, Stephen Wise, I actually mentioned Stephen Wise Free Synagogue before in New York City on West 65th Street, off of Central Park West. Um, that. Uh, there's one building, and that's where uh, Stephen Wise, um, the um, remote cousin of Isaac Mayer Wise, the founder of Reform Judaism in America, um, that uh, Stephen Wise um, uh, founded his synagogue under the uh, banner of freedom of the pulpit. He was a great leader in American Judaism, and he opened a non-denominational seminary which again, mind-blowing, right? It's another woe because you think that is an extraordinarily modern thing, non-denominational liberal seminary, because we have so much of that today. But no, this actually was happening back in the 1920s. And so he opened this. And in the opening of that seminary, they said that they would have female students and that they were uh, would ordain women. Okay, But saying you'll do it and doing it, of course, are different things. Mm -hmm. And guess what? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. So, um, so uh, there were several students, here are all of them, and Regina Jonas Snow, that's the transition to the next part of history, but we already get a, got a glimpse of her. What is JIR? So JIR is Jewish Institute of Religion. So today it's Hebrew Union College dash Jewish Institute of Religion. They merged in 1950. Okay. So, and now that, that building went back to Stephen Weiss Free Synagogue, uh, the, the campus went down to West 4th Street, where it is now the New York campus of HUCJIR. But back then, this was a non-denominational liberal seminary with a uh, slant towards, uh, of course, Zionism and all sorts of things uh, in the liberal world. 
And, um, and so these were the different female identified students at that time who were in class with the men. Now there were other, there were tracks for women to be, of course, what, what do you think women were becoming? You all know, this is the, the in a Jewish, Jewish school, teachers, educators, right? The education track, that's where, of course, all the women always went uh, and were directed. Um, and so these women that are listed here, Martha, Irma, Dora, and Helen, all hoped to, be, to become rabbis. And they often took the same classes as the men and excelled. But the one who really, really shined was Martha Newmark, monitor her, her maiden name, um, that she, I think I may have done that backward, monitor was her married name. Um, she went to every single class. Um, and um, no, I'm doing that wrong, I'm sorry. Let me do that backwards. Helen's the one who went to JIR. We're going to come back to Martha in a second. Um, Helen is the one who went every single class, did better than all the men, and they just kept letting her study and study and study. And she kept going, aren't you going to ordain me? Aren't you going to ordain me? And the answer from Stephen Wise was no. And so after something like nine years of study, mm. they finally came up with some, frankly, totally false, you know, special certificate to acknowledge all the studies she did and denied her ordination. So that's that story. Uh, but now we're going to discuss Martha Newmark. So this is kind of parallel now that in 1921, I apologize, I just did this backwards. 1921, Martha Newmark was a very precocious teenager. Her father was a professor at the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College. Back then it was the only campus of Hebrew Union College. And he had, as many of the professors did, again, this is like what is new is old and old is new. It, he had a, a pulpit on the side um, in a vacation community uh, where people from, fancy people from Cincinnati would go uh, in nice weather and especially the summers. And she would go with him and after, uh, as a young teenager, she, after uh, she would help lead things in this congregation. And first it was a little kerfuffle about it. And then people were like, oh, she's pretty good. And so then she entered um, Hebrew Union College and he kind of, again, there were women in, on campus. It wasn't that it was unusual to have a woman on campus. And it wasn't unusual to have extraordinarily young students because there were different ways to enter Hebrew Union College so that you were doing your undergraduate work and, and, and a track to graduate work. And she did this. And then she started taking the classes again with the rabbinical students. And it came for a time for the high holidays and they all got student pulpits. And there was a shortage of rabbis, again, nothing mm -hmm. under the sun. And she said, how about me? Can't I have a student pulpit? And so this um, this just created all sorts of you know challenges, and and so uh, what happened is the the question started to come up first: Can she have a student pulpit? And would they ordain her? And in the meantime, she keeps studying and studying and studying. And of course, these things took years because it's a bureaucratic mess. And uh, the HUC decided to throw it to the Central Conference of American Rabbis. And so they were meeting in Cape May, 
New Jersey. <laughs> a theme. <laughs> a theme. <laughs> and so, um, and what this was, uh, Cape May is a beautiful um, area, a really well-known vacation area during this time period. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, the site of many Christian revival meetings. So I don't know why they were in Cape May. It's kind of a little quirky and odd. Uh, and, and it's a dry community, by the way, also, to this day. This day. Right, because of the religious underpinnings of this community. So I don't know why they were in Cape May, but not as much fun if they didn't have gone, perhaps gone somewhere else. But anyhow, um, and so they um, they had this meeting. And so next slide, I think, hopefully, this, let's see if the order, our orders match. So in June, June 29th, 1922, so this is very parallel to J.R. Formating, formating, forming, and deciding all this stuff about how they're going to treat their female students. They have one after another trying to get into that rabbinic track and failing. This is happening in Cincinnati. But in the meantime, in Cape May, New Jersey, they decide to have this. But because at these conferences, especially to such a gracious place like Cape May, New Jersey, and nice weather in June, they brought their wives, the male rabbis brought their wives. And so they decided to have this uh, resolution. And um, and they decided at some point to table it in order to invite all the women present, the wives, to come in and for them to weigh in, not to vote, but just to give their opinion about if a woman could be a rabbi, which is really historic. Again, nice grab for power. I love this part. And so with all of that, um, they actually uh, voted uh, yes, and uh, and and so. But the HUC Board of Governors said, no, we're not going to ordain you. And so even though she had completed seven and a half years of the nine-year curriculum, she eventually gave up and withdrew. And even though the CCR said, yes, we could have a woman rabbi and they would accept the woman because the HUC was basically hoping the CCR would say no because the CCR would say, no, we won't accept women into our ranks, that we won't support this. But they didn't. But on the other hand, it took another 50 years for it to happen. Mm -hmm. So you have to also wonder how, every, how invested people were in that, right, that process. Okay, so going forward. Uh, next slide, yep. So then, but interestingly enough, across the right Atlantic in Germany, um, really in a similar time period, Regina Yunus was starting her very long studies. And now this is the part that is extraordinary because again, over 50, about 50 years later, Sally Presan, uh, and you have basically, you know, we've seen a lot of parallel stories here. And, and th but this is to me, the most extraordinary parallel story. So she just grows up, just wants to be a rabbi. Nobody in any of these stories, by the way, wakes up one day and says, you know what? I'd like to be historic. I'd like to break barriers. Every one of these people wakes up and does the same thing that we did, that Rabbi Siegel and I did, and just say, I want to be a rabbi. I want to be part of Jewish leadership. Yeah. And so she did go to the liberal seminary in Berlin, and she studied and studied. And at that time, the... Um, head rabbi of the seminary supported her and said, yes, you one day you could be a rabbi. But assigned to her for her rabbinical thesis 
to study and make the argument whether or not women could be ordained, mm. which is insane. Talk about like women and disadvantaged people having to do the hard work. Mm. She had to write the 100 page thesis. And it's actually today, there's a wonderful biography that you can read that has with the full translated thesis in the back of it. And we have a colleague who's a WRN member who's working on another uh, biography that will be out uh, between a year and a half to two years uh, with all of her papers. So she, um, she writes this thesis. And in the meantime, her mentor, her supporter, her promoter dies. And they appoint a new head to the seminary. And he says, no, we're not going to ordain you. So one of her mentors ends up ordaining her privately. And what's interesting is that there's a document where Leo Beck says this has happened. He doesn't say, I support it. He was the head of the community. He was the official head of the German Berlin community. And so, but he does say it happened. Um, but of course, the backdrop is that the show is happening and men, including the, the rabbis, are either being deported or they're fleeing. And this leads a void in the community. So originally she led in ways of being at Jewish day school and being a teacher and being a pastor in ways that were socially more acceptable ways to be a female identified rabbi. But as men were missing from the community, she started to actually be on the bima and start to preach and things like this. And then uh, she was uh, deported with her mother to Theresienstadt and then later to Auschwitz. And there she perished, 1944, on Parshat Bereshit. So that is when we, the first Torah portion of the year, right after Simchat Torah, that's when we mark her your site. So that's how her, where her story ends. And, uh, and our um, colleague, Rabbi Offenberg, now has uh, more documentation about her yurt site, actually. So we're going to now go to a, a better narrative, a happier one. Uh, just I want to mention, Paula Ackerman is another interesting person. In 1950, her husband, the rabbi in the pulpit, uh, dies, and she's the Rebbitzin, and she takes over the whole pulpit and runs it for a whole bunch of years. There's always, uh, and there were, the question came to HUC whether or not they would call her rabbi and, and permit her to be ordained, and the answer was no. So this is a, a graphic that our, our colleague, uh, Rabbi Rachel Behrman, made for um so we started to do a whole run up to the 50th anniversary and we start a whole year in advance and the reform movement joined us and many people throughout the world and actually people are still celebrating, which is super cool. And so Rabbi uh, Presan's story starts the exact same way that Rabbi Jonas's story, just a, a young woman who's inspired by her Judaism and says, I want to be a rabbi. And as a teenager, starts writing to Hebrew Union College to ask whether or not they would take her as a student. And we have those letters right there in the archives. Unfortunately, we don't seem to have the answer, right? She said some of them, they think they have some of them, some of them they don't have. Right, yeah. it's, been, it's been a little controversial whether or, not, whether or not the school's answer actually exists. I mean, of course, they've existed at some point, but whether or not we, we still have it. 
Um, and so, um, again, they had a program where you could enter early part of your undergraduate with the University of Cincinnati, and you could study there and Hebrew Union College kind of in a track together, and then just swing right into um, the rabbinical program. And so she did. And uh, we, we've heard both from her directly and from other extent evidence and from uh, you know people who are contemporaneous witnesses to this. Uh, the school was hoping that at some point she would just get married and leave. And they literally, like she had a boyfriend who was in the program, and they literally went to him and like, just marry her already so she'll go away. And she <clears throat> made the very conscious choice. And I mean, we most of us are of the age that you know that back in the day, the woman got married. She was expected to step away from her professional career for the most part. And certainly a trailblazing moment like this, especially to... Rabbi Prisam consciously made the choice um, to never get married so that she could um, take on this role in history and to do what she was really built to do, which is to be a rabbi. And interestingly enough, she ended up serving at Stephen Wise Free Synagogue on West 65th Street <laughs> as the assistant and an associate rabbi. And her senior rabbi had a uh, horrific stroke, unfortunately, Rabbi Klein. Um, and and survive, thank God. And um, she would um, push him around and, and assist him in every way and really took over all the duties of the senior rabbi during that time period. When Rabbi Klein, uh, I think, died, I don't think it was, died finally, um, the synagogue refused to make her senior rabbi, even though she had been running the synagogue for a bunch of years. And um, at that point, she actually left the almost left the rabbinate, and she called uh, he, you know her mentors at Hebrew Union College and everybody, and said, I, "I don't think I can do this anymore." And they said, "No, you don't understand. You have to. You you actually have to." And they finagled things and got her a uh, job in a in Elizabeth, New Jersey, <laughs> and um, it was very part time, and it was uh, mixed with a lot of pastoral care, a local hospital. Um, she was miserable because it was not the way she had expected things right play, would play out. And then Monmouth uh, Reformed Synagogue in uh, in Monmouth, New Jersey, near the shore, not too far from Cape May, um, hired her, and she had a very very full career. She's their emerita, and uh, and they they are just um, you know her lifeblood really. Uh, but we consider her like our, our our true matriarch because of the sacrifice she made in so many ways in the path that she did. But we talked about uh, the language very consciously of opening doors, because one of the gifts that Rabbi Presan has done is that she has nurtured every generation, not only of female identified rabbis, but anybody who didn't look like that Google search. She has always been the first one to reach out to the student who was the first rabbi of whatever color or the first person of any identity and say to them, I did it and so can you do it and continue to offer that mentorship. So that image of holding open a door was so true to her. And one of the fabulous things uh, that we were able to accomplish for the 50th anniversary is that Behrman House Publishers created a children's book called Sally Opens, Opened Doors, Open the Door. Um, so we're very, and done by Rabbi Sally Sasso. And, um, and so we're now going to think about the impact and challenges the ongoing revolution of women and the rabbinate. So we're gonna to listen to two different clips with very contrasting perspectives. As um, Alex, as you line up the first one, 
Um, Joy Levitt, Rabbi Joy Levitt, is a very accomplished rabbi um, ordained by the Reconstruction Judaism movement in 1981. I really hope. Okay, let's go forward. Yeah, if we can do the screen share, that would be great. Oh, Sophie's on. Thank you. I really hope that women in the rabbinate is not a radical transformation of Judaism. I hope that it is the natural extension of a tradition that is elastic, plastic, um, ever widening to include more and more people. That's how I read Judaism. So radical transformation would say we came from a, a misogynist, patriarchal, oppressive society, and we broke that. That's not how I read it. I respect those who do. I just don't, I've never read it that way. I've read it as we've adapted to the changes that we saw possible at every stage of our history. Um, we took the very best from the societies in which we lived and what America had to offer in the mid to late 20th century was inclusivity for women and we rode that wave. And that's part of the muscles that we've developed since the beginning of Judaism. Okay, so that's perspective number one. Now we're gonna to listen to perspective number two with the next thing. Elise, Rabbi Elise Goldstein of Toronto. She's a WN member ordained by Hebrew Union College, one of what we call our Vatikot, the original generation of women ordained as rabbis in the reform movement and members of WN. Very accomplished author, by the way, and, and scholar. I think changes are obvious and I think they're huge. Um, in, my, in my last book um, called New Jewish Feminism, in the introduction, I say that there has been no revolution in Jewish life as big as the revolution of the of the engagement of women in religious life since emancipation. The leaving of the ghetto for Jews in emancipation, in my mind, is equal to the ordination of women. That's how big a historical movement it's been. Because everything you knew about Judaism was called into question, because everything you understood about gender roles was called into question, because the very existence of women in the rabbinate challenged the notion of spirituality, of God the Father, of, of uh, non-feminist theology, of the disengagement of women. These are all deep, deep changes. It has nothing to do with the fact that there was just a woman on the bima. It's the concept of having women as leaders of the Jewish people that radically changed Judaism, that caused people to ask the question, where are women in this text? That caused people to ask the question, why is this law for or against can women, can't women, should women, shouldn't women, that cause people to ask, what is the Judaism that we've inherited? Is it a Judaism that has been understood by men, for men, through men? Or is it a Judaism of all the Jews? And these questions were asked only because women were in leadership positions. It has radically, radically changed the face of Judaism. I think obviously for the better. And it'll It'll be the same thing for gays and lesbians as they take leadership roles. Judaism will not be destroyed. It'll be the same thing for forward-thinking Jews. The reality is we really have two kinds of Judaism today. We have progressive-thinking Judaism, 
and we have traditional thinking Judaism. The biggest challenge for Judaism is not women in the rabbinate. It is getting these two Judaisms to talk to each other. It is getting these two Judaisms to live together. It is getting non-Orthodox Jews to take responsibility for the future of Judaism and to stop abdicating it and to stop saying, well, if it wasn't for them, there'd be no Judaism. We have to start saying, if it's not for us, there'll be no Judaism because frankly, we are the Judaism of the future. In 200 years, I really cannot believe that there will still be Polish dress wearing Jews who live in the 18th century. There will still be a pocket of them just like the Amish. But the Amish are not the mainstream of Christianity, right? Liberal Protestants are the mainstream and, and liberal Catholics are the mainstream of Christianity. So my biggest question for the Judaism of the future is not the role of women. My biggest question is when will liberal Jews take full responsibility for being the Jews of the future? I think that she draws the line actually in the wrong place. I think that there's, you know, and I think Rabbi Shmuley actually exemplifies this. There's a lot of progressive forward thinking, grappling with our tradition going on in, in modern orthodoxy, open orthodoxy. I think the uh, Valley Beit Midrash has been wonderful at uh, bringing forth a lot of voices from that community. And um, and so I don't I, I personally would not draw the line where she drew the line. Um, but I think it also doesn't look like the Google search. Mm -hmm. Right. So that because that's where people when they think Judaism, they think the Google search. Mm -hmm. And so the, the question is, like, maybe the line should be in a different place. I think Joy Levitt also, you know, it, it, I, again, I wouldn't I wouldn't nod enthusiastically for everything she said, but I think she has some fine points there. Uh, about what to to see Judaism as an ongoing revolution, where where Rabbi Goldstein is like, you know, there's one revolution, right? Yeah, and 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 in some ways, Judaism is an ongoing revolution and evolution. So there was there is actually a lot of commonality in what they're saying at the same time of taking different sides of that that coin. Um, but I think especially Rabbi Goldstein, you know, talks about when when women came into leadership. And again, it's not just about rabbis. And I think she said that very nicely at the beginning, that it, that it, it's about Jewish leadership and ownership. Mm -hmm. Right. We can't all be leaders. That doesn't make actually for very good Judaism. Some of us actually have to be participants. So, um, you know, but but ultimately, you know, to think that to be able to look at the narratives through many different lenses, to be able to look at theology through many different lenses, to look at Jewish law through many different lenses, Jewish ritual, spirituality, and so on and so on, that's really, really important. And, and the more people who, who, who with many different beautiful identities participate in it, the richer we're going to be. And yes, we'll take more ownership for our Judaism when we don't abdicate it to any one group or identity. So I think between the two of them, they have a lot of, of good meat to, to share with us. And so here, here's my little list. And actually I could have kept going with many firsts. So we talked about Sally Presand. And here I said, first woman in America, we discussed you know, how we could maybe say that other ways. Rabbi um, Sa Sandy Sasso, first woman ordained in the Reconstructing, Reconstructionist, we used to call that, movement, 1974. So this coming year is her, her anniversary coming up. 1975, first woman uh, ordained um, uh, 
that should just be first woman uh, cantor ordained, Cantor Barbara Osfeld uh, by Hebrew Union College Reform Movement. 1985, conservative movement, uh, Amy Alberg, uh, first woman rabbi ordained in the state of Israel, Rabbi Nama Kalman, we know her as Nami. Uh, she uh, was a long term, long time dean of the Jerusalem campus of Hebrew Union College and just retired at the beginning of this year. Um, and let's talk about um, orthodoxy. So Mimi Fagelson, privately ordained, 1994 by Shlomo Karbach. We also have to mention, of course, Shlomo Karbach carries a very mixed legacy, one of horrific ab sexual abuse and harassment, um, and also good things like this. So very mixed bag there. Um, 206. 2006, sorry, Haviva Nair, it's been a long two days. Uh, Haviva Nair David, uh, first woman um, or publicly to receive Orthodox rabbinic ordination. This has uh, been very controversial about how it is and how this, uh, there, there are many different ways to see her ordination. But she left Orthodoxy and now calls herself a post-denominational rabbi. She does amazing peace building, this Rav Hashem, in Israel with, um, with her Arab neighbors. She does uh, an interesting, innovative mikvah work. She's an accomplished author. And strangely enough, we were in college together, but I didn't know her at the time, and I really wish I had. She's awesome. She yeah. is awesome. Uh, 2006, Rabbi Elliot uh, Kukla, first out publicly transgender rabbi to be ordained, ordained at HEC again. Um, 2009, and this is really the dividing line for the Orthodox world, that Sarah Hurwitz, uh, rabbi now known as Rabbi Sura, um, ordained by Rabbi Avi Weiss, who also, of course, I believe ordained Shwili, mm -hmm. um, at, uh, and together they founded Yeshivat Maharat. Uh, her title shifted for a, a short time as people reacted in the Orthodox world. I think she has spoken for the Valley Beit Midrash many times. She's a great friend to WRN. And, um, and of course, what they are doing now there for all these years is, is absolutely phenomenal and wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I have uh, done programs at Yeshiva Maharat to support those uh, women and their students and their alumni. And, um, and they are at the forefront of, you know, that ongoing evolution and revolution. Um, first African-American rabbi, Eliana uh, Alyssa Stanton. Uh, she was just at our convention with us and an active WN member. Uh, this was 2009 also, and 2017. Uh, the, the 100th Israeli reform rabbi ordained in the reform movement who happened to be a woman and happened to be the daughter of Nama Kalman. So that mm -hmm. nice little line there. And I should have on this list that in 2022, the first publicly out non-binary rabbi ordained by Hebrew Union College. So the evolution continues. Um, I want to mention, especially at this moment in Jewish history over the last two weeks, we have so many reform colleagues and colleagues in Israel and so many of the reform uh, colleagues in Israel who are members of Maram, that's their, their rabbinic organization, 
uh, ordained by Hebrew Union College. So many of them are female identified and are members of WRN. And they are out in communities in extraordinary ways with very, very little funding. Um, I think of our um, colleague Yuval, I can't remember her last name right now, who is serves the Gaza envelope mm, um, and has been doing funeral after funeral after funeral. Um, and other colleagues who have stepped forward to help her because the volume has been so horrific, um, who, are, who are giving strength to their communities during this time. Um, they are true pioneers um, and, you know, are uh, in areas where they're the only, uh, think of Mary Gold, who went through all those court fights in Israel to be able to have funding, state funding for her, her Jewish community. Um, they're just one after another after another who have just done extremely uh, uh, heroic things in Israel. Uh, I know personally, I've been ordained over 26 years. And um, when I used to go to, to Israel years ago, you know, and I'd be on some Jewish thing and, um, you know, they'd be asking, why are you here and why are you traveling? And eventually it would come out that I was a rabbi. Uh, if I had said to those, you know, young LL, um, you know, security guards, I'm a space alien. I, I, I am a kangaroo. You know, I might have. I might as well said that. I mean, honestly, that the way they would look at me. And and now I go through and they, they say, oh, you're a rabbi. Do you know my rabbi? And then say the name. <laughs> I mean, it's it's extraordinary because of our colleagues and the work they're doing. Um, you know, is it is it perfect? No, you know, far from perfect. Uh, we had uh, at our last convention, uh, extraordinary rabbis from around the world uh, at our convention before that, that during the pandemic that was virtual, we had rabbis who were the only rabbi in the entire country. Uh, you know, Brazil, Ukraine. I mean, th these these were uh, female identified rabbis have done extraordinary things. So uh, with so many minuses against them, um, and they're really incredible uh, role models. So we're just going to jump forward, and I'm just going to quickly highlight some of the obvious, so of, of the, the challenges that we are working on. So there's Amy Alberg and uh, Sarah Hurwitz, by the way. So nice pictures, keep going. Um, okay, keep going. We're gonna keep going. We're, so um, keep going. So usually I do a whole thing. So we talked about the Reform Pay Equity Initiative. Actually, I have to put a new slide. We just launched our new website last week, so we can do that now. Um, so we're the wage gap that we have in the greater American secular world is the same in the Jewish world. And there's no reason for that. We have values. We have uh, secular laws, we have Jewish values. There's absolutely no reason for it. Um, and, and so we've been doing a lot of education work around this. We've been organizing the reform movement. Um, and uh, and trying to really break through all that bias. Okay, next thing. Next slide, thank you. So here we see, and it goes across all the different types of um, Jewish professionals, whether they're cantors, rabbis, executive directors, administrators, administrators, of course, and among the, the educators, there are too many women, it's a pink color profession, so you can't even really talk about percentages. 
When we talk about wage gap, I think that this line is really instructive. This is from secular data, not, not Jewish data. Um, it's important to see, like we talk about these, you know, okay, 81 cents per dollar a white man gets, but for the average woman in America, which basically carries over to being a Jewish professional in the reform world. Um, you know, but when you see this add up, and of course, there, you know, many of you in the room know this personally, um, that, um, excuse me, this is, it really adds up, all those pennies add up. So I've got to say, so I think many of us would like a lot more money in our pensions. <laughs> These are some of the interventions we've been um, helping build to talk about implicit bias in hiring processes. And of course, I did that before their hiring process. This really makes a huge difference. And of course, studies show that you cannot do these things one time. You can't have one, you know, one person come in and talk about a wage gap. You can't have one session where we talk about like, do we have bias? That you actually need to work on this every single day. Because studies actually show that if you do the one-shot deal on this stuff, believe it or not, your bias goes up in the way it's expressed in your whatever you're doing. It's it's horrific to think of that. Because they think because you've like thought you've covered it, they, then like you don't worry about it. And I think for us, frankly, you know, it's interesting, Rabbi Goldstein talked about liberal spaces. I'll talk about liberal spaces for a moment and say, I think in some ways we we are more dangerous than the people who openly hold an explicit bias. Mm-hmm. You know, Eddie, this goes back to our conversation about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. That um, that if we think we're free of of you know we're above it we're 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 so above this that we think everything's fair and equal and good, um, I think that lets us off the hook and actually lets those biases run amok. Mm-hmm. And I think when we're able to really look in the mirror and say, you know what, it's it's me too, it's it's all of us mm-hmm. that we all have to work on this every single day even if you're a feminist and even if you're a female identified and even if you're this and even if you're that, that we all have to work on on these biases. So one of the things WRM has built um, because paid family medical leave is not a standard thing throughout the reform world. It's not a standard thing throughout the uh, Jewish world. Although I do see that Orthodox communities are actually a little bit better about paid leave because of such a value of having children in those communities. But so we set our standard at 12 weeks paid leave. Um, and we are inviting um, people to go to our website. These are free resources. They are um, with model language for play handbooks. It's with model language, with, with uh, contract language, and a whole over 20 pages resource explaining it, looking at the secular data, looking at the Jewish stuff, and then through frequently asked questions. And as of yesterday, we launched on the same part of our website, two new videos that you can sit and um, learn with your community about the issue. Uh, By the end of November, there'll be um, two uh, study guide there to guide you through conversations and there are many good resources so you can start the conversation in your community, including on how to fund it. Um, we have done uh, historic groundbreaking work in the Me Too space, and Rabbi Siegel uh, mentioned this. Um, this is our website that brings together uh, all of this in one place. Everything that we do for advocacy is outward facing, open to the public and free. 
because while we're very niche in that WN or female identified reform rabbis, non-binary, gender queer, that we, um, all of our advocacy work is meant to benefit everyone in the Jewish community of every identity. That we we very much want to recognize, I think, the privilege and power we have as rabbis. And we live in that really irony and that that duality of, of the subjugation and the misogyny and bias that all of us deal with. But at the same time, the power of being rabbis and being leaders in the Jewish community. So as we try to right these wrongs, we want to make sure that we lift up everyone with us. So I always like to leave congregations and communities uh, with a little homework when I speak on this topic. So this is my homework for you. Um, I hope that you will uh, observe the Yorzeit of Rabbi Regina Jonas, uh, a Parsha Breshit. So if it's not already in your Yorzeit list to make sure it gets added. That you review the pay of all of your employees with a pay equity gender lens um, and other equity lenses. And again, if you uh, go to uh, Reform Pay Equity, you'll, there's a whole website of resources we have there. And uh, that you will adopt robust paid family medical leave policies for all employees and that they're clearly communicated so people can access them. And finally, uh, and Eddie, this is especially for you, my friend, that you will adopt ethics policies to create safe and respectful spaces in your community, whether they're in person or virtual, so that people will know um, at all times, if something goes amiss in their interaction with your community, that they know where to report it and that they know that they are valued Elohim, as someone who's holy in the sight of God uh, and intrinsically holy and that you have procedures and policies to support that. And for those not in the reform movement, I will say that um, Sacred Spaces is a wonderful resource for them, very easy to use their Klaylim uh, website. And I'm a, uh, always a resource to every community uh, wanting to tackle any of these issues, uh, we we have a lot of support for you in that. So I'll leave it there. It, it's mind-blowing, right? Is. All these other women who either functioned as, as rabbis, led their communities, uh, I mean, 16th century, right? But the fact that there's an extent story, there has to be some truth in there, right? That there's some sort of extent, even if someone dreamed it up, I mean, to have such a dream, right? It's amazing. Um, you know, these other women who studied side by side with men for years and years and years and then were denied. Uh, Rabbi Jonas, who in the parallelism to, to Rabbi Presan's story is amazing. And I, the part I left out actually is Rabbi Presan, um, oh, I'm going to forget the names. It's um, before Rabbi Gottschalk. His predecessor, I can't remember. Uh, oh, maybe it'll come to me. I know talk. Um, that the the head of HU uh, Hebrew Union College said she would be ordained, and then he died. Mm -hmm. And then new uh, rabbi came in, Rabbi Gachak, who has unfortunately now been documented as a horrific sexual harasser and abuser, um, upheld her ordination and ordained her, and was a wonderful promoter of her. Mm -hmm. So again, very mixed legacy. So, um, but it, it's startling that these two women had such parallel stories, but because of the show, I had such different endings. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure spending yes, time. Thank you, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Zaymore. And I also thank you to everyone on Zoom and everyone in person. It was a pleasure to learn with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. 
Remember that you can join our email list at valleybatemadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.